From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois' state government and politics. Well, the state of Illinois has a law aimed at what are known as crisis pregnancy centers run by groups opposed to abortion. Critics say they use deceptive means to stop women from getting the procedure. We'll talk more about it. Also, Illinois lawmakers passed an assault weapons ban a year ago, but its future still remains cloudy. That and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime State House reporter and observer. And our guest this week is Hannah Meisel, a reporter with Capital News Illinois. Hannah, it's always good to have you back with us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. News came down this week about this law regarding crisis pregnancy centers. It was an effort from abortion rights supporters and to get this law passed. It went into effect. Now we find out that the state has decided it is not going to enforce this law. How did this all come about? Well, it's not just that the law uh, was being pushed by abortion rights supporters. It was that the law was kind of the brainchild of uh, Attorney General Kwame Raoul and his top staff. They had said back in the spring, hey, you know, we have this longstanding Consumer Fraud Deceptive Business Practices Act on the books. We've expanded it, you know, many times before to name specific types of businesses and, you know, specific types of, um, you know, fines thereof for violating the law. Uh, you know, we need to specifically name uh, what's known as crisis pregnancy centers, limited service pregnancy centers, these places where depending on the strength of the organization behind them, they might be as small as offering kind of prayer and ministry and counseling and maybe some material things like diapers, uh, baby formula, et cetera, uh, all the way to being these um, kind of facilities that are medical adjacent and they offer things like ultrasounds, which by the way, you know, if you went through your normal insurance, you can't get for free, but at these crisis pregnancy centers, you're offered them for free pregnancy tests. And in some cases, STD testing and uh, treatment opponents of these facilities, they say, Hey, you know, these facilities are posing as the true abortion facilities, uh, true abortion providers. And they're quote unquote, tricking people into coming in uh, either through advertisement, you know, they're really good at Google search engine optimization, although Google in the last few years has put in, you know, some uh, guardrails on that where Google will generate a little thing that says does not actually provide abortions. But, you know, there's billboards, you see them in Springfield, you see them all over the state, it says pregnant, need help, and it directs you to one of these uh, CPCs. Even when you go in, uh, for example, the two clinics down in the Metro East, We've heard reports for years now that the CPCs have set up these mobile clinics right in front of the actual, uh, you know, abortion clinics, and they have these people that they also say are not uh, working at their direction, but obviously they're working on similar purposes, these so-called sidewalk counselors that will then direct people who are kind of confused about where to go into the CPC, sometimes causing people to uh, miss their appointment at the actual abortion clinic. And so uh, the attorney general said, hey, this is fraud. We need to be able to actually treat it as fraud and uh, bring legal like, uh, action against these CPCs. 
he pushed it. Um, you know, it, it passed this spring, uh, this summer, uh, after the governor signed it within an hour, anti-abortion groups, uh, sued over it. And then a week later, after a day of uh, arguments on it, the, uh, federal judge up in Rockford, he, um, temporarily enjoined the law from being enforced and he called it both stupid and likely unconstitutional, uh, par partially quoting the late uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And so, uh, you know, since then, it's been a question mark about where this law is going. I checked back uh, many a time on this case uh, in these past several months to see where it's going. So definitely a surprise this week when on Monday evening, the attorney general announced after the um, anti-abortion groups um, claimed victory over it, the attorney general's office sent out a press release saying, you know, we have agreed to not enforce this law, uh, kind of intimating that, oh, you know, the broader consumer fraud law uh, still stands and, you know, can use it to uh, prosecute or, you know, bring legal action rather against the CPCs. You know, it begs the question, why push for it so hard? Uh, you know, I think maybe one of the um, the theories that I've come up with, uh, you know, after talking to some folks in these last few days is that uh, Colorado had, I guess, a similar law and uh, it's been enjoined also, you know, on First Amendment grounds. And so perhaps the attorney general's office uh, didn't want this to actually go up through the chain of federal courts because, you know, very possibly the Seventh Circuit might have overturned Judge Johnston's ruling on temporarily enjoining it. And then if it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, it might have broader ramifications for uh, all of these. So maybe, you know, he thought he'd just cut his losses there. Um, but definitely a head scratcher of a week, I would say. Charlie, I'll bring you in on this. Well, your thoughts on, on what you've heard so far about it? Well, the question I have is, why did the attorney general pursue this so doggedly in the first place? Because it was pretty clear that as soon as it passed, and as Hannah said, just a, a matter of almost moments after the, the governor signed the bill, the suits were filed contending the right to life folks were contending that it's was an unconstitutional limitation on, on free speech. The judge in Rockford was really very critical when he enjoined the the case and looking at the the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court had the Attorney General pursued this all the way up to the Supreme Court in Washington, it likely would have been thrown out. The law would have been thrown out. And as uh, Kwame Arul says, well, I can still go after him under the Consumer Protection and the Fraud and Deceptive Business Practices Act. And so I'm thinking, well, you, you could have done that all along. So as I say, I'm just really unsure why we went through this whole drill. Well, Hannah, let me ask, is there, have you talked to anybody or have you heard of any possible plan to do something a little different with this? I mean, I, I'm guessing that people uh, in the legislature who support abortion rights don't want to give up this easily. Well, I mean, it's complicated because uh, the attorney general now believes that the broader Consumer Fraud Deceptive Business Practices Act uh, will, you know, 
still be in effect here. And again, it begs the question of why did you push so hard if you thought the existing law was adequate? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the, you know, if you look at this statement from uh, the House sponsor, Tara Costa Howard, she uh, was pretty upset about, um, you know, this about face from the attorney general's office. Um, you know, it it took a lot of political capital to get this done. And, you know, now they have, I guess you would say, egg on their face a little bit. Um, but to do something different, again, like I said, you might be tempting, uh, you know, risking going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, of course, has a 6-3 very conservative majority uh, after the presidency of Donald Trump. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that they want to do that. Um, you know, they people want to put winning uh, cases on the board and not put them in a position to lose. And again, that's one of the, the you know, I think most credible theories uh, as to why the attorney general agreed to, you know, permanently enjoin this law from being enforced despite having, um, you know, pushed for it. Charlie, it's not uncommon, of course, for the legislature to pass a law and then to see judges weigh in and, and everything. But I, like, like Hannah said, I, I did think this was a little interesting to see uh, Raul act the way he did afterward. Do you remember anything similar to this going back uh, on laws where the state sort of said, OK, maybe maybe we didn't uh, get this right? Yeah, I, I can't recall anything off the top of my head where someone was so uh, adamant pushing for it and saying, oh, yeah, there's no problem. This is certainly going to be constitutional. The kind of stuff we're trying to outlaw is not free speech. It's harassment. And then when the rubber hits the road, kind of saying, well, actually, we really don't need this, and I'm not going to pursue it any further. And as I suggested earlier, it could be he just doesn't want to get the issue before the Supreme Court quite yet. Ultimately, the whole question is going to get to the U.S. Supreme Court, the whole question of what types of limitations states can put on a woman's right to choose. And given the, the makeup of the current court, my guess is that whatever states want to do to limit that, the the court majority would be all in favor of it. And Hannah, there was also a law that passed in 2016. Uh, does that play into this at all? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. This uh, law in 2016, way back before Trump was even the party's nominee, anti-abortion advocates had, uh, you know, allowed themselves to, I guess, dream bigger about um, what they could do with a, you know, conservative majority U.S. Supreme Court that would, uh, you know, actually revisit Roe v. Wade. The legislature, they amended this 1970s era law called the Healthcare Right of Conscience Act. This was a law that was passed in the wake of Roe v. Wade that, you know, said, hey, basically Catholic hospitals and providers who have, you know, deeply held convictions uh, against abortion, you don't have to perform abortions. You, you're not going to be published, uh, punished rather for not providing that uh, care. And so fast forward to 2016, I guess some forward thinking uh, Democrats in the legislature said, you know, we need to amend this. And of course, you're, you still don't need to uh, do abortions, obviously, but you do need to tell patients where they can get information about uh, abortions or, you know, even refer them. This law was uh, sued over immediately in a, a pair of lawsuits 
in 2017, a federal judge enjoined it. And that's been kind of sitting there enjoined for the last several years. Uh, I had totally forgotten about it until this spring when I was writing about this new CPC fraud law. And I thought to myself, hey, whatever happened to that one? And it turned out that uh, just recently in the spring, a federal judge in Rockford happens to be the same federal judge in Rockford who's overseeing the CPC fraud law case uh, or would uh, in the summer said, we're going to have a bench trial on this. So that bench trial was scheduled for September in Rockford. I went all three days and the cases are very similar they're not the same, but they both, we learned a lot about how these CPC facilities work. Um, you know, the funding structures, the uh, personnel that work there who is and isn't licensed uh, by the state, you know, there's in some, uh, you know, there are volunteer medical directors who are, you know, doctors who are OBGYNs who, you know, kind of have standing orders but never see patients. And then there are um, ones that, you know, they have full-time nurses employed there and they're the ones who run the ultrasounds and give pregnancy tests, et cetera. So, you know, basically the crux of it is that in this case, the anti-abortion advocates, they would really like to see the First Amendment being applied. And, uh, you know, the state, uh, the attorney general's office uh, attorneys who are defending the law, uh, they say this has nothing to do with the First Amendment. Uh, this is about providing the minimum standard of care. And so we went deep into a rabbit hole on, um, you know, medical ethics for those three days. Um, but, you know, just really, really interesting uh, because, again, uh, the anti-abortion advocates would rather this be a First Amendment issue, just like it was in the CPC fraud law that, uh, you know, the attorney general this week said would be permanently enjoined because the First Amendment, of course, is a much more winning issue for them. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Hannah Meisel with Capital News Illinois. Well, we have not forgot about the state's assault weapons ban. In fact, there is a deadline approaching, Hannah. Uh, where do things stand at this point when the when it comes to this? Because we continue to see this maneuvering that's taking place. Well, as of now, you know, things are still moving forward. We have this January 1st deadline for people who already owned assault weapons and certain types of attachments um, when the law was signed back in January. Uh, you know, they have faced this January 1st, 2024 deadline to register those things with the Illinois State Police. And the it's obviously been challenged in court uh, over and over at this point. Um, just this week, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, said, we're not going to hear this uh, right now because, you know, we until things are settled in the lower courts. Important to say that this is not... Uh, should not be taken in any way as, you know, any uh, ruling on the merits of the case, just as the Seventh Circuit ruling way back in uh, early November was not exactly on the merits of the case, but it was a very lengthy uh, opinion and lengthy dissent that did, of course, uh, discuss all of the, you know, various um, legal, you know, maneuverings and um, merits, even though they said it was not <laughs> uh an opinion uh, that they're, you know, weighing purely on the merits. But, you know, the Seventh Circuit let it go. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court is uh, going to let it go. They're not going to enjoy it. So we seem to be on track 
to enforcing that January 1st dead, uh, you know, deadline. However, things are still not exactly settled. Um, the Illinois State Police has these rules in place for, you know, which uh, weapons exactly, which attachments need to be registered and like how all of this works. Uh, but the you know, very, very into the weeds, the Joint Committee on Administrative Rules um, that oversees rules from state agencies, they have yet again kind of punted, you know, whether or not to uh, approve the rules or, you know, do an up or down vote on them uh, until after January 1st. And so it's kind of a, a bit of a, a punt, uh, mm -hmm. as you would say. And, um, you know, so I guess the rules are in place for now, but it begs the question, of course, how many people are actually going to register their weapons with the Illinois State Police? And what's the punishment going to be? Because way back in January, when this thing was first passed, we saw this letter. I don't know if people remember, but a bunch of sheriffs around the state um, signed on to this letter and said, we're not going to have anything to do with enforcing the assault weapons ban. We're not going to go house to house to see if you still have assault weapons, uh, you know, in your basement or whatever, in your gun safe, uh, that you didn't register with ISP. So it remains to be seen, uh, what actually changes after January 1st, uh, because, but for most of this year, these guns have not been able to be sold in Illinois you know, barring a couple um, of exceptions after a lower court judge um, ruled against the law. So it's been it's been quite the uh, journey. And then earlier this week, the federal court in East St. Louis heard some hearings on the gun registry portion itself. Um, so remains to be seen. But, you know, at least for now, we do appear to be on track to enforcing the law. Uh, January 1st, that uh, folks with these assault weapons and attachments have to register them with the state police. And that was a good point about the law enforcement uh, saying they're not going to enforce the law. Uh, Charlie, we remember that. We talked about it on the show before. Uh, at that time, I mean, uh, it sort of pretty much gives people a free pass uh, when they hear that, I think, to not register. And from what the latest numbers I saw, and I can't remember exactly the percentage, but it was a small amount of what uh, is expected to be uh, the amount of these types of weapons and, and that type of ammunition that's out there that has been registered so far. It's unclear exactly what has to be registered, how it has to be registered. And that was what the uh, Joint Committee on Administrative Rules hearing was about. The Republicans raised all these questions, and the state police said, well, you know, we don't really know. We'll have to take them one, one by one. And I think they reported something like 6,000 people have completed disclosure out of the more than 2.4 million void card holders we have in the state. And they've registered slightly more than 12,000 assault weapons slightly more than 6,000 accessories and 117 magazines. So it's unclear. Well, it's not unclear. It's it's pretty clear that, that people really aren't following this procedure quite yet. Now, some of the gun rights groups argue that, well, it's not been very well publicized. And the, the state police said, well, we've been talking about it for four months. And part of it is the, until the rules are in place, you're really not sure exactly what 
qualifies to be registered and what condition, how you have to do it. And as things stand now, we'll go and we won't have the rules finalized when the uh, reporting requirement kicks in on January 1st, and it'll be another maybe three weeks before JCAR finalizes the rules. In the meantime, at some point down the road, the U.S. Supreme Court is very likely to take up this challenge. The issue will be, are these military-type weapons, are those things that were in common use, you know, 200 years ago or not? Well, Charlie, people may not understand what JCAR is. I think Hannah had to mention that. It's made up of lawmakers. There's certainly some lawmakers on JCAR that probably don't want to see rules put in place. Do you think this is what's happening here, a bit of a stalling? No, I don't think I don't think they're necessarily stalling. Yeah, JCAR is made up of an equal number of, of legislators from the House and from the Senate, equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats. And part of it is there will be a law passed saying do X, Y, or Z, and this department is in charge of figuring it out. And then the department has to come up with the specifics of the rules. How are we going to make the general idea of this law? How are we going to put it in effect? And they have to present the rules to this JCAR, and the legislators basically say, yeah, those rules carry out at the nitty-gritty level what we had in mind when we passed the law, or, hey, no, those, those are totally out of whack. And so that's where we are now. We're waiting. JCAR is going to consider in mid-January, maybe try and finalize these rules. Anna, we got just a couple of minutes left here, and I wanted to go back to a story that you reported on, um, I believe it might have been last month, but we didn't get to talk about it much, and it was a, a lawsuit that was filed against the state's biometric privacy law. So fill us in on really quickly on what that law does and what was the latest decision. Sure. So way back in 2008, uh, you know, before we started living in this modern world that we live in now, the legislature passed what's known as the Biometric Information Privacy Act. Uh, you know, kind of the theory is you only have one face, one fingerprint, uh, you know, even though it would really be a pain to go get a new social security uh, number, you can do that if your uh, identity is stolen. Um, but, you know, wait uh, 10 plus years uh, for the technology to kind of catch up and, you know, employers, uh, businesses, they're using things like fingerprint scanners, uh, you know, signing with fingerprints, uh, all of that sort of thing um, in their business for both customers and employees. And in like 2018 or so, a whole wave of these lawsuits started being filed under BIPA and it's kind of created a cottage industry. Um, and the Illinois Supreme Court so far has uh, upheld BIPA and kind of strengthened it uh, in a pair of rulings earlier this year in February. Um, you know, they said, hey, you know, actually, yes, the law does say what it says. And, um, you know, every time the law is violated, it you know, means an extra, uh, you know, the um, violations are accruing. Now, the court is not... Um, you know, has not yet answered the question of whether, you know, each violation also means a separate $1,000 or $5,000 uh, in damages. Um, but anyway, this has really freaked out the business community um, over the last several years. And so um, they had been warning and, um, 
you know, pretty nervous about this other separate case that went uh, in front of the court in September and was decided uh, just recently. And it was about uh, hospitals because hospitals use a lot of this kind of thing. You know, to get into certain areas, you might need to scan your fingerprint or, you know, maybe even a face scan. Um, certainly, uh, as we've seen the opioid epidemic spread, um, technology has uh, kind of created a way to uh, prevent some of, you know, stem some of that from the source. And uh, companies have created these fingerprint enabled uh, medicine cabinets so that, you know, we always know who was in those medicine cabinets to deter, you know, theft and abuse, etc. Uh, and so these nurses had sued uh, under BIPA and said, like, hey, you know, we were, our rights were violated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, you know, hospitals that they worked for said, you know, actually, no, there is this exception within BIPA that says um, if you're doing your work as it pertains to, you know, actually caring for patients, then you are, uh, you know, fine. And um, so the court heard it back in September, like I said, and kind of um, in a surprise, unanimous vote, um, the court said, actually, you know, the hospitals are in the right here, the nurses are in the wrong. And so that was a bit of a relief for the business community, but still lots of questions about this law um, remain unanswered. And, uh, you know, it continues to be a very ripe, you know, area for these um, attorneys. That's created a cottage industry around it. Okay. Let's go down to our notes from the field. And Charlie, let's start with you. Well, it's only been three months since the no cash bail provisions uh, went into effect. But the results so far seem to be promising in the sense that jail populations are down and the crime rate has not increased dramatically as some of the uh, local law enforcement people predicted at the time. For example, here in Sangamon County, the county jail's average population has dropped by about a third since cash bail was eliminated, and crime rates haven't spiked. And the the system is, is working pretty well. And that's true in other counties that have reported about two-thirds of the time when the state's attorney asks for someone to be held because they're, they're a threat to somebody else or a threat to run away, uh, about two-thirds of those petitions have been granted. And so it, it seems to be working the way it's supposed to. And Hannah? Well, earlier this week, Secretary of State Alexi Janulius and Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart appeared uh, together to announce uh, this new program wherein detainees of the Cook County Jail who are being released, they're going to be given ID cards um, you know, we've seen this push um, at the state prison level, too, um, in the last several years, uh, starting in December of 2020, I believe, was the first pilot program for this. Since then, uh, the pilot program for giving inmates at the state prisons has expanded and uh, eventually become codified into law. But it's definitely it's harder um, in jails because that population is a lot more transient. You don't necessarily always know when someone's getting out, um, especially, you know, before um, September 18th, when the uh, Safety Act went fully into effect, cashless bail, you know, you had cash bail and technically you could bail out, you know, whenever. Uh, and so that made it harder to predict. And so this is a pilot program. 
um, that the Crow County uh, Jail is going to, you know, experiment with. You know, this is something that giving someone a state ID card, it really does help them uh, kind of kickstart whether they're uh, prison inmates or jail detainees who are being let go to kickstart their new lives. Because without an ID, it's kind of shocking the number of things that we don't necessarily think about that we need our IDs for. Uh, and to not have it presents an pretty enormous and at times insurmountable hurdle for people to get jobs, housing, social services, anything that they need uh, to keep them, you know, frankly, out of jail, out of prison. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Capital News Illinois' Hannah Meisel. You can find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. Join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR. Illinois Public Radio.